We're continuing today in our series on the life of David in 1 Samuel. We're going to be looking at chapter 24, and uh, we're going to continue in this series where we're looking at the theme of God looks at the heart, or the Lord looks at the heart. And it comes from that that famous uh, verse when uh, Samuel is anointing David as king, and it says that God does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so we're going to repeat that every week just because I hope by the end of the summer that that sinks in, that you you take that away from this series, that you remember it. If nothing else from this series, you remember that, that God looks at the heart. So we're going to look at 1 Samuel 24. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning. Uh, Let's pray before we read today. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, Lord, we come all carrying many different things with us, many cares on our hearts, joys on our hearts. Uh, We have things that are in our heads that uh, are distracting us uh, from hearing what you have to say to us today. So I pray, Lord, in these moments that you would quiet us, quiet our hearts and our spirits, quiet our minds. Would you make us attentive to what you are saying to us this morning by your Holy Spirit? And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. And David and his men were far back in the cave. And the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. And then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord and King! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. And some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord, on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. And when David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. 
The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul, and then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So much of our time over the last several weeks has been looking at the contrast between Saul, Israel's first king, who was chosen by God. As as David said in our passage today, he was God's anointed, and he was Israel's first king. Because Israel demanded a human king. They said, give us a king. They were not fully satisfied with God's personal reign over them. Israel wanted to be like the other nations, to appear the same as them. And part of that outward appearance, that image that they were striving for, was having a king like all of the other nations. This is what Israel wanted. And so they got Saul. And he had all of the appearances of a good king, as we've talked about before. He was tall, he was handsome, he was a good leader in battle. This is what a good king looks like. And he was exactly what Israel was looking for. Yes, this is who we want to be our king. Good pick, God. We want this man to be our king. And Saul, too, as we've seen, was more interested in the outward appearance of things than what was good for him or for Israel. It wasn't that Saul was openly antagonistic toward God or he wanted nothing to do with God, but Saul was more interested in the things of Saul than he was in the things of God. Saul had a desire for God's approval or or to be in Samuel the prophet's good graces, but it seems to be more about himself and keeping up the appearances of being a pious king. He wanted to be perceived a particular way. It's a good thing to be seen as the king who has God's blessing, especially in Israel, or the blessing of the prophets and priests. And it's not surprising maybe to us that Saul thought this way. That's not completely uncommon today, depending on where you live. When you look at people who are running for political office or who maybe are already in political office, kings and rulers of the nations now are often looking for the endorsement of the religious leaders. Even people who already have power or are in power, they want to hold on to it more by being seen as being pious and devout. God is on my side. I am the right person to be your leader. We see this still happening now. But there were a few critical times in Saul's life as he was king where he had taken matters into his own hands, where he decided to go his own way and to do what he wanted to do rather than to obey what God had commanded him. And because of that, God rejects Saul as king. And God chooses David to replace Saul as king. Even though David is only a young shepherd boy at this time, God looked at his heart and he found in David someone whose heart was inclined toward him. And very quickly, David's star begins to rise in Israel. And we start to catch a glimpse of his heart for the Lord, particularly in his famous battle with Goliath. David was willing to face the great enemy warrior not because he trusted in his own ability to defeat him, but because he trusted in God's ability to defeat him. David knew if God was on his side that there was no way he could lose to Goliath. It's almost like David believed what we were just singing in our song. If our God is for us, 
Who can be against us? And if our God is with us, who can stand against us? It seems at least at this point in his life, David was living by that philosophy or that theology, we should say. So after this, Saul brings David into his service and David prospers in all of the tasks that he's given, especially in fighting against Israel's enemies, the Philistines in particular. And he and Saul's son, Jonathan, become dear and trusted friends and everything is looking great for David up to this point. But as David becomes more and more popular, Saul becomes more and more jealous of him. And it doesn't help that people are singing songs comparing David favorably to Saul. Has anybody out there ever had a song written about them? Anyone? No? Oh, Carrie has. All right. That's great. Uh, you, it's one thing to have people out there talking about what a great job you're doing. David is a really good warrior. Look at the way he leads his men into battle. But it's something else for people to take the time to write lyrics about you and set them to music and sing them out, and it becomes popular. And this tells us something about the way that David has captured the affections and the imagination of the people of Israel a way, in a way that Saul never would or could. David has killed, or Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And so Saul becomes more and more jealous of David. As much as this is a great honor to David to have this song written about him, it's an even greater insult to Saul, who is already the king, and he just can't handle it. And so Saul's rage flares against David. And we've been told that he's intermittently tormented by an evil spirit at this point. He's become mentally and emotionally unstable, and it seems to become his great obsession in life to take David's life. He is going to get rid of this rival of his. And we see that Saul is still unwilling to submit himself to God's purposes for him and for Israel. Saul is still taking matters into his own hands as he is living still as the king. It's worth noting, I think, that, that God has rejected Saul as king. We've been told this several times. That's, that has been determined. But that doesn't mean that Saul could not have repented at this point in his life. He chooses to continue down his path of opposition to God rather than to turn back to him. Whereas in David, we see someone whose heart is inclined to the Lord. In Saul, we see someone whose heart has become increasingly hardened to God and to what God wants for him. So Saul determines to take David's life and David runs away. And that's where we left things last week in our passage when you look at the, the trajectory of David's life, he's been on quite a roller coaster. He's still very young, but he's had these dramatic highs and lows. He went from obscurity as, as a young boy watching his father's sheep to becoming a national hero overnight. And now, all of a sudden, not that much later, he is a fugitive on the run for his life. And you have to wonder if he wasn't asking, what is going on here? Lord, what are you doing with my life right now? This particular episode that we read about in our passage today, where David is in the caves at En Gedi, it occurs, it occurs in the middle of a crucial period in David's life, which is his time in the wilderness. And if you know about David's life, 
then it's likely that you are familiar with some of the events that occur occur while he is out there in the wilderness. And let me just say as a caveat, I'm going to use the word wilderness a lot in this sermon, so just be prepared for that. Uh, But David spends a lot of time in the wilderness. Uh, This is one of the maybe the best known stories from that time where he's hiding in the cave and he could have taken Saul's life but chooses not to. But there's also the story where he eats the sacred bread in the sanctuary at Nob or his encounter with Abigail and Nabal. And there are many others as well. It's hard to pin down just exactly how long David was out there, but it was likely that he was in the wilderness for many, many years A lot of scholars estimate it was probably seven or eight years. Some people say even up to 20 years that he was on the run for his life from Saul. Living as a fugitive, leading his his band of several hundred loyal followers, he has these men who have stayed with him. And they are hiding, they're escaping, they're fighting all of this time. This isn't necessarily the most well-known or celebrated uh, season of David's life, but it's more important than I think we give it credit for many times because David is in the wilderness. And the wilderness plays a significant role in Scripture as the place where God changes people. The wilderness is the place where God changes people. It's dangerous, it's unpredictable, it's, it's wild. It's right there in the Word. And it's the place where people are tested and where they are tried, where God shapes and forms them, where he prepares them for what he has in store for them in their lives. And that's the season that David has entered into now. Whenever we come across a wilderness story in Scripture, and there are many of them, if you start to look, many of the the most well-known characters in Scripture spent at least part of their lives in the wilderness There are two main wilderness stories that we should think of that inform all of the rest of them. The first is is the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years on their way from bondage in Egypt to the promised land, what we talk about as the Exodus. And the second is the 40 days that Jesus spends in the wilderness, fasting and being tempted by Satan. Both of these are significant events in God's overall story of the redemption of the world. In the first story, the story of the Exodus, God uses the Israelites' time in the desert, their 40 years of wandering, to form them into a people for himself. These were people who were enslaved in Egypt, and and God, after hundreds of years, had heard their cries for deliverance, and he rescued them. And then he made a covenant with them, and he promised to be faithful to them as their God. And if you know the story, you know that the Israelites were not always faithful in return. The Israelites were very human, just like we are. And the reason that they had to wander for so long was because of their disobedience to God and because of their lack of trust in him. And it's easy when we look at that story to interpret their 40 years of wandering in the desert as the consequence for their sin, that it was a punishment for what they had done and their disobedience. And of course, that is part of it. That's not untrue to look at it that way. But God also used these 40 years in the life of this nation in constructive ways among them. This is the time that they became God's people while they were wandering in the wilderness. This is where God taught them how to properly worship him. This is where God gave them the law, where he taught them how they were to live their lives in ways that honored him, both with each other and with other people that they would run into along the way. 
It's where they learned to put their trust in God completely for their every need. I remember several years ago, uh, I was at a youth ministry leaders conference, and I I went to a seminar, I attended a seminar on the book of Exodus while I was there, uh, just a couple of short sessions over a couple of days, and it changed my whole perspective on this time in the wilderness for the Israelites. The professor teaching it pointed out the fact that when the Israelites finally crossed over into the promised land, that that first generation who had come out of Egypt, they had all passed away. And this is something that we're taught in, in Scripture. This wasn't anything new. But what he pointed out was that all of the people who then entered had only ever known this life in the wilderness. All of the people who entered in the promised land, that had been their entire lives up to that point, was wandering for 40 years in the wilderness with God. And this was not, they did not know life in bondage to a foreign oppressor. All they knew was life under God's sovereign rule. It was God who governed every part of their lives while they were out there in the wilderness. It was God who led them along the way as a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day. It was God who told them when to stop somewhere and to set up camp. It was God who told them when it was time to pack up and move on. It was God who provided their daily food, their daily bread. And God who provided their water. It was God who defeated their enemies before them while they were out there in the wilderness. These were a people whose whole lives had been learning to trust in God alone. And this is what 40 years in the wilderness accomplished for Israel while they were out there. In the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, his 40 days are meant to correspond with the Israelites' 40 years in the desert. And it was also a time of formation for him. It was a time to prepare him for all that was before him, all of the things that we read about in the gospel. And Satan tempted Jesus to take matters into his own hands, to grasp for the power and the glory that was available to him, power and glory that were his by being the son of God. But Satan tempted him to take matters into his own hands and to do it his own way not the way that his heavenly father had prepared for him. And yet, Jesus showed himself to be perfectly faithful and obedient during this time of testing and trial, trusting in his heavenly father's good purposes for his life. We see that even for Jesus, his time in the wilderness was important for his life and for his ministry and what he came to do. And so it shouldn't surprise us in looking at these stories that David spent time in the wilderness as well, that God used that time in David's life to prepare him for what was ahead, to be uh, the leader of God's people, to be their king. This was not a small task that was in front of David. And what our passage today shows us is a bit about how David is being formed during his time in the wilderness and how God is using it in his life. And how we're, what we're going to look at this morning is particularly how God uses that time to develop David's trust in God's sovereignty over his life. This is another one of those great passages that we look at today that we keep running to, into in 1 Samuel. It's, it's very real. It's very human. It's not this great, glorified, shiny, rosy passage. 
whenever I think of David and his soldiers running around in the wilderness, uh, I can't help but think of Robin Hood and his merry men. And I just felt like I had to share that with you all. For some reason, they're out there, they're hiding, uh, and they're running away from the king. This is what David is doing. And so they're hiding in the back of this cave at a place called En Gedi. It's a place along the Dead Sea. It's a great place to hide if you don't want to be found because the landscape is very rough. It's filled with caves and cliffs and canyons everywhere. There are wild animals, or at least at that time, there would have been wild animals roaming around all of these different places. And so this is a great place for them to hide. And yet Saul then arrives with his much bigger army, And he enters the very same cave that David is in to relieve himself. And it's exactly what it sounds like. This is what Saul is doing in the cave. This is what makes it so human right here. And it's this dramatic moment. David has been running for his life for some time now. He's always a step or two ahead of Saul, always just out of reach. Saul was the more powerful one. He had the more powerful force behind him. And if they ever do meet, it's not going to be an even match between them. Saul will have the advantage. But all of a sudden, not by either of their plans, they are in the exact same place at the same time. And all of a sudden, the tables have turned and David has the upper hand. And David is now facing a test in the wilderness. Saul is without his army. He's in about as vulnerable a position as a person can be in. And this is David's big chance. And his friends think he should take it. He can kill Saul right then and there. And why shouldn't he? Because Saul's trying to kill him. If Saul catches up with him first, he will take David's life. But all of a sudden, Saul is placed right in front of David. You can take him out now. Your life will no longer be in danger. You could get on with being king. You can get on with God's plan for your life. David, take matters into your own hands. In fact, they even see God's hand in what's happening. He says, God has set this up for you, David. He is delivering Saul into your hands. This is God's sovereignty on display. You should feel free to take this opportunity. This is David's big temptation. The question is, how will he respond when faced with it? David sees things differently than his friends, and he is the one who is in the right in this situation. David knew that it was God who had chosen Saul as Israel's first king. He was God's anointed. And it was also God who had rejected Saul as king. It was also God who had then chosen David to be the next king. It was God who had protected David throughout his entire life. God had given David the victory over Goliath. It was God who had preserved his life so far against Saul's attempts to kill him. Everything that had happened in David's life up until now had been God's own doing, not David's. And so for David, now was not the time to start taking matters into his own hands. He was going to continue to trust in God and God's sovereignty on his life. God had told David he would be king, and David left it to God to bring that about in his own good timing. He knew better than to meddle in this way in what God was doing with him or with Saul or with the entire nation of Israel at this point. David was not going to take Saul's life. So instead, he sneaks up to Saul and he cuts off a piece of his robe to make his point. He could have done it. He could have taken his life in that moment, but he chose not to. And in this, David shows himself faithful. 
A similar incident occurs not too much later, and it's recounted in chapter 26 of 1 Samuel. And, and this time, David and one of his men named Abishai, they sneak into Saul's camp in the middle of the night, and they come across Saul fast asleep and unguarded. And it's another chance for David to take Saul's life if he wants to. And Abishai tempts David again to take Saul's life. And he even offers to do the dirty work for him. He says, I can take care of this really quickly, David, if you just give me the word. And yet David does not take the bait once again. David rejects this argument that God is once again delivering Saul into his hands and he should take advantage of it because Saul was God's anointed. God was the one who had put him in power. And as far as David was concerned, only God would be the one to remove him. And in his response to Abishai, David gives his argument for his own actions. In 1 Samuel chapter 26, verses 9 through 11, David says this, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. These are the words of someone who is putting their trust in the sovereignty of God over their life. Perhaps what's most remarkable in all of this, what we see is David's attitude toward Saul in the midst of all of these things. Both in chapters 24 and 26, they end with these exchanges between David and Saul. In chapter 24 that we read, David comes out to Saul and he shows him by holding up this piece of cloth that he had torn from his robe and he says, look, I could have harmed you, but I didn't. I could have taken your life, but I didn't. And Saul responds in a way that that seems like his heart has softened toward David in some way. He calls him David, my son. And he acknowledges that David will one day be king though his heart never softens to David for long, and soon the pursuit will continue. But David never seems to be consumed with hate or bitterness towards Saul, and he is firm in his stance that no harm will come to Saul by his own doing. What we see in all of this is David's time in the wilderness leads him to a fuller and deeper trust in the Lord, and that God will bring about the future for David in his own good timing. It's an important lesson for the future king of Israel, but it's an important lesson for all of us as well. I wonder how many of us would have been able to exercise the same restraint as David if we had been given the chance that he was. We all have something to learn from time in the wilderness, from doing business with God there. Uh, I'm not sure many of us want to end up in the wilderness, both because of the place itself but also because we don't necessarily want to do business with God on his own terms when we really think about it. Being in the wilderness means that we are out of control and that there is no way for us to deny it. And most of us don't like that feeling of being out of control in our own lives. And yet there can be good for us there. And wise followers of God throughout history have recognized this fact, that there is something for us in the wilderness, of doing business with God in the wilderness. Friends, we all end up in the wilderness at some point in our life, whether it's literally like with the characters we see in Scripture or in some other way. 
These seasons of our life where things are out of our control, where they're not going the ways that we want them to, where we ask, God, what are you doing right now? What is happening in my life? And the question that we always have to ask is how are we going to respond when we find ourselves there? Do we open ourselves to God's presence with us there, like David, or do we harden ourselves to God's work and presence, like Saul does? I like what Eugene Peterson says about the wilderness. He says this, everybody, at least everybody who has anything to do with God, spends time in the wilderness. So it's important to know what can take place there. He goes on to say, when we find ourselves in the wilderness, we do well to be frightened, but we also do well to be alert and open-eyed. In the wilderness, we're plunged into an awareness of danger and death, and at the very same moment, we are plunged, if we let ourselves be, into the great mystery of God and the extraordinary preciousness of life. God uses our times in the wilderness to shape us and to form us. God uses our time in the wilderness to strip us of all of the things that we have taken pride in. All of the things that we think we have going for ourselves are often of no use to us when we are in the wilderness. God uses our time in the wilderness to make us realize that we are not in control, that we are not the captains of our own fate as much as we pretend to be so many times in our lives. And most of us play a much smaller part in this world and in its history than we like to admit sometimes. But God also uses the wilderness to remind us of his goodness and of his grace, of his steadfast love, to remind us of his provision and of his sovereignty and to remind us that our lives are in his hands. And to finally remind us that our true identities are found in relationship to him that he is our loving father, and in Christ, we are his beloved daughters and sons. God's purpose for our time in the wilderness always is that we would emerge from it, knowing that we belong to him, that we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. In David, we find someone who opened himself to the great mysteries of God while he was there in the wilderness. And we all aspire in some ways to be faithful to God and the way when we find ourselves in the wilderness to respond in faithful ways. But even as we hold up David's example of, uh, as one who gave a faithful response and what it looks like, we do well to remember that David's story is more about God's faithfulness to him than it is about his faithfulness to God. And when we find ourselves in the wilderness, when we, when we face trials and temptations there, our hope is not in our own ability to follow David's lead, to emulate his example in some way. Our hope is in the fact that we have a great high priest who is not unable to empathize with us in our weaknesses, but who was tempted in every way as we are, but who yet was without sin. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Friends, our hope is in Jesus Christ, who walked through the wilderness of this life himself, who faced, tri faced trials and temptations, and who remained faithful where all of the rest of humanity failed, and who now carries us through it to be with him. Amen.
We're going to close uh, with Psalm 57 today. Yano already prayed it for us, uh, but it's a psalm. You know, when God does that, whenever things like that happen, we didn't plan this out. But I take it as a sign that God wants us to hear Psalm 57 today. So we're going to pray it again. Um, It's a psalm that is attributed to David during his time in the cave this passage that we just read, that he wrote it uh, as he was in this cave or reflecting on his time in the cave when he ran into Saul. We see that right here in the title. It says, uh, of David, a mictum, when he had fled from Saul, excuse me, from Saul into the cave. Let's pray. Have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me. For in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, Men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is a great prayer for us to pray anytime we find ourselves in the wilderness. Let's sing and make music before the Lord.